welcome back to another installment of the Conspiracy Skeptic. I'm the Conspiracy Skeptic, Carl Mamer, and uh, with me is my guest, uh, I, I can say your full name, right? Yes, by all means. Okay, I guess you're going to have to help me with the pronunciation of your last name, because if it's not Smith or Brown, I will likely <laughs> screw it up. Uh, it's Kyle. and Kyle po- Polich. Polich, yeah, okay, so just like it's kind of spelt Polich, yeah. like, like from Dungeons and Dragons, the uh, the, the lich. Ah uh, yeah yeah very uh, very similar yeah all right and uh, Kyle and you live uh, you live you're in Cal California eh? I am I'm down in Los Angeles oh okay good and you're you're are you, you're a former Chicagoian I sure am yeah okay. uh, many years until I've been out here maybe uh, gee seven eight years something like that now but oh, yeah all right okay yeah. Chicago. I wasn't creeping on you. I just, I just, you, you do a podcast, and I downloaded some episodes of your podcast, and I was listening to it, and and uh, you sounded oddly familiar with some of the bad neighborhoods of Chicago. So, <laughs> so I'm like, oh, must be from Chicago. But, yeah. Well, thank you for the listens. Yeah, yeah. And I guess on that note, you you do what was the name of your podcast? So mine is the Data Skeptic Podcast. Um, you know, it's at iTunes and all the usual places. So yeah. uh, I tend to focus on skeptical topics in the world of data science. So yeah. when we hear all these crazy claims about this algorithm predicts the future and does all these other fancy things, I want to look at what the uh, evidence for those claims are. Yeah, very cool. You know, sometimes people are like, um, you know, one of the great joys in life is sort of discovering a podcast, that like a good podcast, and there's like a whole bunch of back episodes, and, and uh, you know, it's like, like, like the last one that happened to me was like a podcast called Life of the Law. If you're kind of like a law nerd, that was kind of cool, and then like Radio Lab and stuff like that, and then just, you know, having this big back catalog. You don't have a huge back catalog, but it's a really, it's a really cool podcast. And it's kind of, oh, thank you. Yeah, it's been kind of fun just to kind of start working through your uh your your episodes and what what I love is it's like a, it's kind of like you, you do some topics on kind of like data mining and stuff mm-hmm. like that and 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 like you 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 are a man full of passion for 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 this data mining stuff it's like it's it's you know I don't understand half of it but you know when people sort of just speak passionately about a certain topic it's it's always enjoyable so. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, there, there's so many interesting things going right now, going on right now in the field. Uh, it's just a, a great time to be involved in stuff. Wow. So, what what is your background? If you can, I mean, obviously, because you, you, yeah, I mean, you you were talking with. I was listening to the one about uh, streetlights and crime um, mm-hmm. in Chicago, and you know, and you seem to, you know, you you were keeping up with the guy in terms of terminology and knowledge of the, the field. So you you're you're kind of in that field. Yeah, I, I've always been kind of nerdy, and I did my uh, undergrad in computer science, so that was a good foundation, and then I studied artificial intelligence in grad school. Okay. Um, at that time, you know, this, this term data scientist wasn't around, but the nebulous collection of ideas that we now call data science is sort of what I was involved in. I've had a career that just wound its way through the advertising world, and now I'm in, you know, some other spaces, so... Uh, that's in a nutshell my background. Wow. Okay. Yeah, because I had a friend. She did. She did like geography, yeah, like like sort of like a lot of statistical things, and and then uh, library science. And so she's was a G, GIS kind of yeah. taking geography data and sort of mapping it and all that sort of stuff. And she makes a crap ton of money. I don't want I don't want to know your income, but but <laughs> it's that that field is like. You know, there's not a. It's kind of this weird cross-discipline thing where, yeah, uh, yeah, where, yeah, and and I, I don't know about in, in the states, but in 
Canada, like all of our uh, census data, the the Canadian federal government kind of then resells it to like uh, businesses and stuff like that. So uh, it's a little bit of a yeah. I, I, in the states, it might be like, well, this is all public record, but in Canada, it's like, you want that data? How much do you want to pay for it? So. Yeah, that's too bad. Uh, I'm a big proponent of open data, um, and, and the U.S. is pretty good about it. The census is actually the census is great, and there's a lot of data you can get access to. There is sort of this industry around it of people who just polish it up and resell it, which I guess I'm okay with if it's a true value add. But um, it's neat that even citizens every day can get their hands on good data and, and look into things like census and whatnot. No, that's great. Okay, all right. And uh, I guess we'll just a, f- a few other things about your background. Uh, oh, you know, I listened to another one of your podcasts. You had your wife on, and you were doing ant colony optimization. But it wasn't really about ant colony so much as it's kind of like that. that's one kind of search algorithm or something. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that was kind of a nice, nice kind of a bit of back and forth between you and your wife. And, and that was quite cute. And <laughs> Oh, thank you. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I get the most compliments about um, our episode that she and I do. So she's on every other one with me. Oh, nice. And okay. truth be told, it was just sort of an afterthought on my part to okay, bring her in and, and do those. But uh, I think it's been really uh, a good uh, of the show. Good, okay. Is she in the same field as you? or She is not. She has a very liberal arts background. She studied photography and um, is, you know, uh, somewhat interested in data kinds of stuff, but it's not really her area. So in a way, that makes her kind of my perfect co-host because she keeps me honest and asks good questions that probably the majority of my listeners are also asking, but don't have the channel to right. get through to me on. Okay, yeah, yeah, that was that was that was, that was very charming. Anyway, uh, let's see, it's, I can ask how how old you are. I'm thirty three. Thirty three. And how how long have you been married? I've been married for a week and uh, Whoa, something like forty two days. Yeah. Wow, dude. <laughs> oh, no, no, wait, sorry, a year. <laughs> okay, I was gonna say, is that a data joke? You know. <laughs> yeah, we're on our honeymoon right now. No, oh, sorry. Oh, oh, okay, <laughs> just past one year. Okay, good, good. C- congratulations. Right, where where did where did you meet? Can I ask you where you where did you we meet? We met at a former uh, place that we both worked at. The company I worked for owned her company, and we actually met at. I lost you for a second there. Oh, no, that's okay. That's all right. Okay, yeah, yeah. Maybe it's your wife's account. Don't tell him that. Don't tell him that stuff. But okay, right. So you, you met at work. Yeah, I've got. Yeah, I've got a philosophy about. Um, it's okay. It's okay to date a coworker as long as you both honestly believe the relationship's going to last longer than the job. So. So oh, I think that's a nice metric. Yeah, I think that's sort of. But yeah, if you're so if you're sort of dating like kind of a miss right now, and it's a coworker, that's not going to end well. So. Yeah, yeah, and, and luckily for us too, there was virtually no possible conflict of interest there in very different parts, so it was no big deal. Oh, that's even better too. Yeah. Yeah. All right, but we should probably jump right into the conspiracy. And, uh, okay, so for you know for the magic of podcasting, because a lot of times people's favorite conspiracies are not really their favorite conspiracy they come on to talk about. But I would say for the magic magic of podcasting, uh, Kyle, what is your favorite conspiracy? Mine is is somewhat of a new one actually uh, that I've just been getting into the past six months or so, and it's the. Um, Shoot, uh, I should have looked up the physicist's name, it, but uh, David Hockney is partnered with some physicists, and it's the Hockney someone um, uh, hypothesis. And uh, my apologies for not knowing that guy's name, but it's basically uh, David Hockney, who's a, a pretty well-known artist, has gone down this path of exploring innovation in art and believes that he has pretty good evidence that around the 14th, 15th century, a lot of artists started being a bit more like engineers and using optics and things like lenses and camera obscura 
to do their art, and it became more rote and mechanical than what we would generally consider art. Mm-hmm. And I think it qualifies as a conspiracy in that uh, there's a lot of debate. The art world doesn't seem to want to accept this hypothesis. But from my analysis of it, it's pretty um, incontrovertible. And it's this interesting fact that was kept hidden at the time because these artisans didn't want their secrets to come out. And it was almost lost to history until some investigations started. Oh, okay, all right. All right. But we're, correct me if I'm wrong, we're going to do the Bible Code, right? We are indeed. Okay, okay. Bible was <laughs> a very great conspiracy. Not my favorite, though. So okay, I okay. Okay, sorry. I'm like, I'm like, wait, did I, you know, I only pay half attention to anything in life. So I'm kind of like, <laughs> I'm kind of like wait. Was that you're the Bible code guy, right? No, yes, okay, right. Right. yeah, okay, right. But but you know, for the magic of podcasting, right? Your 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 actual favorite your your favorite conspiracy is is the Bible code. Indeed, sorry. About okay. that. Yeah, no, no, no problem. I'm like, you know, just see my life flash before my eyes. Okay, all right, and uh, yeah. So what? Uh, I, I, probably a lot of people on my podcast have heard of the Bible code because it was, or I mean, maybe not because it seemed like it was like the late '90s. It was all the it was all yeah. the rage, right? Yeah, I think maybe a quick refresher on what exactly it is might, might help yeah. for anyone who, who doesn't know or it's been a decade since it's been in a lot of the mainstream media. Um, I think the best way to kind of get a sense of it, 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 well, at a high level, it's the claim that there are secret codes embedded in the Torah, so the you know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and maybe some extensions into some of the other books that if one knows how to look for these things, can find future events pre-written in this ancient text. Um, And the method that they use for this is a a little bit like a crossword puzzle. So imagine if you had a book, in this case the the Torah, that was um, written in a a font like Courier New, where every um, character is the same width. And then you had a really long string. And then you cut that by some number, let's just say a thousand. So the first thousand characters, no spaces, no punctuation on one line, the thousand and one starts the second line, and so on and so forth. It ends up looking much like a crossword puzzle where you can read it in the horizontal direction and then potentially look for crossword puzzle-like other words that appear amongst the text. Right. Kind of um, find a word idea. Yeah, very much so. And the rules are a little looser than that, though, because in a crossword, I think you only have exactly horizontal, exactly vertical, and then diagonal each way. Okay. Never in reverse, though. Okay. Um, the Bible Code allows all those combos, also in reverse, and allows this other sort of move that, uh, if you think about chess, how the knight can skip, it goes up two and over one, mm-hmm. you can do any kind of combination of that. So up four, over three, whatever suits the um, particular grid of, of characters you have in front of you. Okay. So w- would you say that's like... Uh whole lot of degrees of freedom would that be a correct term absolutely yeah it's it's a a pretty broad um space to work in to find these types of codes okay Uh, the one slight condition that's put on it is they have these uh els equidistant letter sequences so if you were interested in a particular term like um let's say obama Mm -hmm. uh, you would start and you'd find an o and then you'd look for where where's the next b after that o and let's say it appears 20 characters later Okay. Then jump another 20 from the B and say, is there an A here? Then another 20 characters and see if you can spell the whole word in that fashion. Okay. If you can, that qualifies as one of these skip sequences. If not, you just increment. So instead of going to 20, try 21 and just right. keep looking and looking until you found something. Right, yeah. So more, more, uh, more degrees of freedom, right? Exactly. Okay. 
So the the story kind of gets interesting around 1994 when um, there was a paper published in Statistical Science by uh, Doran Whitsum, Eli, uh, Eli Il, Il, Iliahu Rips, I think his name, and Yoa Rosenberg. Okay, you, you, um, you're going to butcher something. They're, they're, yeah, they're, absolutely. They're kind of, to, to me, as a Canadian, they're kind of exotic Jewish names, or sort of. Yeah, yeah, very well said. Okay. okay. Um, so they actually tried to be a bit scientific about this. Um, what the loose description I gave earlier is, you know, the sky's the limit on whatever you want to look for here. Um, they put a couple metrics in place. One is to measure the distance between two um, sequences. So, of course, earlier we said we'd look for Obama. Um, just finding Obama in and of itself is not particularly interesting. But if Obama intersects with, um, you know, global meltdown, mm -hmm. that would be a, perhaps a prediction that during the Obama administration we'll have a global meltdown. So. Okay. By the same skip sequence, you'd look for that phrase. Um, right. So and then, so sorry. So like, I mean, is it like okay? So Obama runs horizontally, and then you look for a global meltdown vertically, or can it be Obama horizontally, global meltdown vertically, or horizontally, vertically, diagonally? Like, is that more degrees of freedom you have, or? Um, it's it's hard to say. I, I mean, yes, you do have those options. It's mm -hmm. kind of the, the sky's the limit on what you want to do. How you measure how to constrain it and what makes it a worthwhile data problem is, is actually a, a tricky thing to measure and, and say with, with any, in any meaningful way, okay. um, which I think is partially why the paper got published in the first place. Um, when they published this in Statistical Science, the um, editor of that journal put sort of a forward and said, you know, we've reviewed this, the methodology looks okay, we don't have problems here, but we find these claims to be, you know, pretty extreme, so... We're going to publish this as sort of a puzzle that other people who aren't, you know, the reviewers didn't have time to go and spend a couple months looking at this. Right. Perhaps right. someone else will review the methodology and find out where it went wrong. Okay. Um, or, or maybe validate the methodology. Who knows? You know, it's a, they want to treat it in a proper statistical evaluation. Okay, right, yeah. So, so, the, so, okay. so, say, so they kind of, what seemed like a pretty far-out claim, the, so the, the editors couldn't quite poke holes in it, so they thought they would kind of give it a fair hearing in in their journal. Yeah, there, there's an interesting story here about peer review in general that I don't know that I can speak to it in, in the depth it deserves, but um, you know, when you submit to a journal, there's a, a, an anonymous, the first year paper should be anonymized um, mm -hmm. so that the reviewers don't know whose paper they're reviewing, and then the reviewers themselves are also anonymous. Um, and when you get into some very technical stuff, you know, science is always about reproducibility, but reproducing something is often a really challenging process. So as a reviewer, and I don't, I've only been a reviewer once, actually, on, on a, in a peer-reviewed publication, but uh, I tried to do my best to do my due diligence and mm -hmm. reproduce someone's work. But naturally, if someone spent a year doing something, I can't also invest a year to make mm -hmm. sure that I follow the same path as they did. So the reviewers didn't find any glaring problems or omissions in the methodology and, and said, you know, we're not going to try and reproduce these results, but there's nothing obviously wrong here, which is, is a pretty typical process. Okay, all right. So, and uh, and and the so the the guys who wrote the the, the sort of the, the let's, let's call it a paper, but I yeah. mean it, it wasn't kind of like a peer review paper, but it was published sort of in the curiosity section or something of the journal, right? Yeah, I, I actually technically it is a peer reviewed paper. There oh, there was okay. a peer review process, okay. um, but it was published. You know, the editor put that note that. 
we don't want this to appear as uh, the journal's endorsement of this as fact. It's published, as you say, as a curiosity. Right. Okay. All right. And, and so, what, what did the uh, so the, those the, the three authors? was three authors, right? What 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 did they what did they find? Like, what were they looking for? Yeah. So they defined a couple of metrics around it. One is the sort of a distance metric to say how far apart two um, skip sequences are from one another, and then how to form a compact arrangement of those. So. Generally, if you want to explore some skip sequence, you start with some word. In, in our example, it's Obama. And then even though you could arrange that however you'd like, probably visually you put that vertically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you look around it and say, what intersects with it? So could be something horizontal or something at a diagonal or an extreme diagonal. Um, they put together some rough metrics about uh, what is a good minimal compact arrangement because Naturally, if, if you're going to look and say, well, there's one over here. So imagine the whole Bible printed out on one big piece of paper. It would probably cover a, an 8 by 8 wall, if not more. If you say, well, way up in the top quadrant is this word, and then 20 feet away and in the lower quadrant is another word, intuitively, if, if we're to kind of go along with the, the hypothesis for a moment, it seems less likely that those two things are in common somehow. Right, right. So... They define a couple of metrics on how we could say what's a compact arrangement. And, and actually, their metrics, uh, you can pick at them, but they're, they're not bad. I, I see a lot of stuff like this in a lot of like natural language processing papers. It, at some point, you know, if you're not a biologist, a chemist, or a physicist, the science isn't as rigorous. You have to kind of say, this is our metric. You're, you know, here it is for transparency. Feel free to criticize it, but we're going to go with this for this paper. Yeah, there's some arbitrary kind of... Yeah, um, I, I don't want to criticize it too much there because, you know, what's the distance between two words? There's no concrete mm-hmm. way of doing that, but I've seen many people define distance metrics between words. I think you and I would agree an apple and an orange are closer than an apple and a car. Okay. Um, so, you know, you, you come up with some means of doing that. Uh, give it your best shot, and then okay. you just transparent with it. Okay. Then they went on to propose an experiment, which also uh, I have to commend. This is the, the right thing to do to explore a topic like this, is say, if the, uh, these codes exist and there's something, information hidden here, we should be able to do a, a actual scientific test. So they came up with what they call the Great Rabbis Experiment, um, where they wanted to look at the names and either birth or death dates of the most important rabbis in history and see if those were encoded in the Torah. Okay. And along similar lines, they actually have kind of an interesting way of, of deciding this. So who's to say who the most important rabbis are? <laughs> right. Um, it, you know, it, everyone will have different opinions about that, but they took a, an attempt at being rigorous about it. They said, let's pull out an encyclopedia of Jewish history, and let's measure the um, number of columns that were required to tell the story, or you know, the whole bio- biography of, of these rabbis, and we'll rank them that way. And okay. that... That is, you know, uh, I would say somewhat of a reasonable measure of importance. I would expect that the um, page on Wikipedia for John F. Kennedy is probably much longer than, well, my own non-existent Wikipedia <laughs> right. page, or, okay. you know, the, the least famous celebrity has a shorter right. Wikipedia article. So it, it seems sort of reasonable. Right. Or President um, Polk or something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, good example. So then they said, well, of these, uh, let's look for their birth or their death dates. And they're picking up the word appellations. And I, I don't know why that's the chosen word, but I'll probably repeat that a lot because it, it's the most useful term in, in this story that other authors are using and such. So they go through and they, they assume first that if the null hypothesis is true, 
that there's no codes, then the names of the rabbis should be randomly matched to any date of birth out of the 32, I think, 32 or 37 rabbis. So in other words, you have 32 names, 32 birthdays. You would expect that if there's no codes, they could be just randomly matched. If there are codes, one would expect exact matches on each. Okay. So this, this is sort of a, a, a worthwhile test. I don't, I don't know if I want to say it's conclusive, but it's interesting. They, they've done a good job to this point. Um, and and there, there's some minor details about how they calculate certain things that are a bit more pedantic. I guess we'll skip over. But then in their experiment, they go through and they claim that the most compact representation, the shortest sequences, do tie the birth and or death date with 100% accuracy it's always the shortest one they could find. Okay. Um, and that being true, we can reject our null hypothesis and claim that, at least for the case of the rabbi's experiment, this data does appear to be encoded in the Torah, and that actually predates the existence of these rabbis by uh, quite a bit of time. Okay. Right. And, uh, and any reason why they pick, like, rabbis? Um, I'm not sure that they picked anything for any particular reason outside of saying that this is uh, a repeatable process and, and, and not too exotic of an experiment. Okay. You know, if you wanted to say, let's look at world leaders and wars, well, now you say, who's the most important leader? What's the most important war? When does a war begin or end is a little bit a point of argument, mm -hmm. I imagine. Okay. But birth right. and death dates in general shouldn't be of, um, in question, although they, they do become in question as the story goes on. Okay. Because, but I mean, my, my only kind of hypothesis is, I believe, like, you know, like, like sort of Jewish, you know, uh, sort of religious works, you've got, you know, you know, the, the, the Old Testament or the Torah, which is very important. But I think, I think they also, like, they have a whole lot of sort of commentaries by, by, by these, these famous rabbis that sort of also form kind of, uh, uh, almost, you know, canon within, uh, you know, sort of uh, Jewish uh, sort of religious work. So, so my only guess is that you know, if these important rabbis who have sort of commented on the Bible or the, the you know the Torah, uh, you can also find their names in the Torah. Then it might, you know, it said, okay, well, you know, therefore these they they speak with a you know authority or something like that. If God's going to encode their names into the Torah and these guys are speaking about the Torah, you know, therefore. We have to listen to them about you know their their, opi their opinion on the Torah is correct. That, that's my that's my wild guess. But there are, there are many Bible code researchers who would be very in favor of that theory. I imagine. Okay. Okay. So then uh, I think the story as it enters, uh, I'll, I'll skip a moment over the um, academic response that came to that, and we can't talk about Bible code without including Michael Drosnin, who okay. is the author of the Bible Code. And okay. the Bible Code Two, and also the Bible Code Three, oh, yeah. um, which but, but the first book. Yeah, I was okay. just going to say it, it seems like to me like there's, there's kind of when you say Bible Code, there's kind there's, there's two stories. There's these three who the three guys who wrote the paper. They were reasonably respectable kind of academics, weren't they? Like they weren't cranks. I don't know cranks. Yeah, right? I, I wouldn't call them cranks at all before the paper, and and not even necessarily after. Okay, okay, but this next guy we're about to get into, he's he's a crank, right? Um, let's start out calling him a journalist, okay. and then uh, <laughs> we'll see where we get. All right, we'll see where we get. Okay, all right. I'm putting my nickel down on Crank, but go ahead. Don't, yeah. Sorry, I should not I should not bias the, the proceedings. It's... And, you know, he his first work before this, he did a book on, um, who's the crazy aeronautics guy with the long fingernails? 
Oh, Howard Hughes. Hughes, yeah, um, which I have not read, but <laughs> okay. um, from what I understand, uh, his his you know unauthorized biography of Howard Hughes has historical accuracy and was perhaps a good work of journalism. Mm, okay. Um, somewhere along the way, he uh, either met or heard of Eli Rips, who's the second author, but one of the you know main guys in, involved in that paper. Mm. I think perhaps even before they published it, and Drosnin was really compelled by this idea that there were codes in the hidden in the Bible. Um, and started investigating it on his own. In fact, if I recall, I read his first and his second book, um, but I only skimmed in preparation for this. He didn't read Hebrew at the time he learned about it, so part of his process was even going out and learning to read a new language in order to continue some research in this area. Okay. Um, which becomes interesting as we talk about some of the codes he's discovered. But, yeah, he put together his book, um, and it's it's unclear how much of it um, the authors would sign off on. Now, they've all made public statements kind of condemning his book, saying, you know, it's his work, it's not ours, we don't believe in it, and we don't even think the Torah code can be used to predict the future the way okay. Drosnin seems to think it can. Okay. Um, the book is probably most famous for... Uh, the fact that he forecasted the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, okay. um, he did put forth this claim, and in fact, later Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated, so uh, pr- we should call that a hit, I suppose. Because yeah. um, a lot of times these people, you know, it's like you, it's like Nostradamus, right? You look in Nostradamus and see if, oh, oh, look, he talked about Hitler here. You know, you know, you sort of put your post-dictions. Yeah, uh, very true. It's, it's easy to, to go back in hindsight and look for these crossword puzzles. Mm-hmm. To make a prediction is a, a worthwhile and interesting scientific endeavor, one which he did uh, in this one isolated case, and it turned out to be true uh, depending on how you define truth, because the prediction wasn't that astounding when he made it. It was that Yitzhak Rubin's name appeared and intersected with assassin who will assassinate, um, <laughs> or at least that's how he quotes it. Uh, now, to me, that could read as Yitzhak Rabin is the assassin rather right. than the victim of the assassination. But there's some other things that show up there, including dates and cities and um, the word murderer. That the more you look at that crossword puzzle, the more it comes out. Okay. So if he, so, Yitzhak Rabin had killed Yasser Arafat, then that would have been a hit as well. Also a hit, yeah. So there is a little bit of the sharpshooter's fallacy in this. Um, but I'll grant him this one, I guess, a little bit. Okay. Um, how how interesting of a prediction is that? I'm not sure. Uh, I, I'm not a political guy, but if you predicted the assassination of an American president versus someone in the Middle East, I find the Middle East, uh, it, unfortunately, an assassination in that area to be more likely, just given the my limited knowledge of politics. Uh, right. I right. think it's, you know. But anyway. Um, I was going to say, you know, I mean, if, if you know, Al, if Al Gore was president, was assassinated, I would be that that would not be a you know a safe prediction. But if you think of Obama, a very sort of controversial uh, president, if he was assassinated, and this is this is not a recommendation or anything, Secret Service. Right. But you know, you know, then you would go, oh, well, you know, yeah, I could see that if something was very very controversial, and obviously there are a lot of hate groups and stuff like that. You know, you know, that would be that would be a fairly safe prediction, maybe, or a safer prediction than you know someone assassinating Al Gore or or uh, you know Mitt Romney or something like that. But yeah, definitely. Yeah, sorry. Anyways, continue. Yeah. So. Uh... You kind of have to draw a line in the sand there as to what did he predict prior to the actual assassination versus how that prediction matrix is displayed today. Because after that assassination took place, 
you could go back and look and say, oh, well, I also noticed that there's the assassin's name appears over here, um, you know, in, in some skip sequence. And the city and other details can come out once you know to, to sort of cherry pick and look for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that they weren't there before then, for me, means you have to say those were not included in your prediction, which would have made it more powerful had you given a name to the assassin before, mm-hmm. prior to the assassination. That would have been really interesting, assuming it wasn't Smith or Jones, but, mm-hmm. you know, that might have been a more interesting claim. That's not what happened. Um, further, in that Matrix alone, which you know is on the cover of the first book and has garnered most of the press, um, I've heard from other translators, and I'm not a reader or speaker of Hebrew, um, but the word he chose for assassin could also very well translate as avenger or murderer. Um, so if it's Avenger, then the whole thing doesn't quite fit. Murder sort of does, but a murder feels a little different than assassination. So okay. there, there's an open question of whether or not he even translated this effectively. Okay. So, and coming back to degrees of freedom, if I believe uh, it was Hebrew doesn't have vowels or something. So you can, you, you, so you're just working with pure consonants or something, and then you can kind of then th- start throwing in vowels as you as you need them. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I have to confess, I have very limited knowledge of Hebrew, but I, I, in, in researching the Bible code, I've read up a lot on it. And what you say is exactly correct, that uh, the historical, you know, original version of the Bible, Dead Sea Scrolls and all that, um, has no consonants. They're all sort of implied through context. Mm-hmm. And a kind of a fun experiment I've done a couple times, take a sentence out of a book and just rewrite it an English sentence without the, the vowels. vowels. You can right, pretty yeah. well still read that sentence. Yeah, you know, your your mind puts the missing pieces together. Um, I believe modern Hebrew has some sort of ways of putting dots and accents that imply the consonants, but that's the, a, a more the vowel, yeah the more contemporary okay. yeah I'm sorry if I call it vowel it's a more contemporary thing. I mean, it wasn't there in uh, old Hebrew, so that makes it a bit easier to find words that uh, may or may not be there. Mm-hmm. And it also another factor is that the Hebrew language, um, I believe it's. 22 letters are in, in their alphabet, they all have a numeric um, mapping as well. So the first letter, ALF, can be used as the letter ALF, or it can be used as the number one. So not only can you find words looking at the, the matrix of characters, you can also infer dates instead of words should you choose to. Hmm. So there's a lot of cases where years are found you know, using the Hebrew calendar, which most of the modern stuff seems to be around 5,700 or so. Um, so a lot of years show up in some of the matrices that Drosnin proposes, um, which are worth pointing out. Those are just letters that can also work as numbers. So it's a bit uh, the fact that it's in you know ancient Hebrew. I think it's fair to say makes it more generous to go and find these these sequences if you want to really look for them. Okay, all right, and, and so so uh, so coming back to um, uh, so Drosnin, right? So Drosnin, mm-hmm. uh, so. You, Predicted Itzhak Rabin's assassination, and uh, and then so emboldened. What 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 did he do? So yeah, he went on and made a number of other predictions as well. Um, not all, depending on how you want to read it. Some may have come true, some may not have. Uh, the, the especially vague ones seem to come true, but there were a number of failed ones. Um, he predicted uh, a atomic holocaust, I believe, is what he caused called it in 2012, which did not happen. Um, he predicted, oh, this is a great one. This is one of my favorites. 
he predicted um, the well, so another one. He predicted Holocaust of Israel for somewhere in the year ninety six, ninety seven. Okay. But then, uh, when that didn't happen, he went back later and said, "Oh, I missed something." Also in the sequence is the word delayed. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and there was a similar one uh, where he had predicted that Al Gore would win the election, uh, which <laughs> the presidential election. And then um, he came back and found some other things that said, uh, thinks maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Very convenient, that. Yeah, so uh, th- there's quite a lot there. You just have to look for it, I guess. Okay, all right. Has he, has he had any good, uh, any, any hits since Yitzhak Rabin? To my assessment, no. Um, a lot of, it, you know, a Drossen supporter might try and claim some because, much like Nostradamus, if they're especially vague or open, one can kind of say, well, that sort of matches this. And also, if you're open to later finding another words that would say this was thwarted or avoided, well, then you can find anything. So right. I wouldn't call those hits either. Right, yeah. And uh, there's always sort of the... Um you know, make a prediction, it doesn't happen, and then there's the, you know, because I've made the prediction, and, you know, people, you know, prayed really, really hard about it, or were right. so, you know, that didn't, you know, it, it didn't happen, you know, the, the the gods, or the, well, I think Drozen, he, he doesn't think God wrote these messages, and he thinks the Bible's written by space aliens or something, right? Yeah, that's another fascinating aspect about this. Um, are, are you to, still are you still uh, hesitating on the crank label for this? Where, okay, this is where we're really getting into crank territory. Okay, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> um, his second book, he starts getting into like there's all the atomic holocaust stuff, and also he starts finding all these matrices for something called the obelisks, and he gets the idea that. Uh, you know, aliens visited us and not only gave us this code, but have left these obelisks hidden in various parts of the world, hoping we'll go one day find them. And I guess that's going to prevent disaster or something like that. It's okay. a little unclear what that's for, but yeah. Um, although I have to say, um, space aliens giving us the Bible code is God gave us the Bible code. Um, it, it, I, I, I'm still waiting for a great story to come out like this because. You know, if you think about Star Trek, right, they have the, what is it, the prime directive that mm-hmm. says you don't interact with a culture until they've achieved warp drive. Right, right, yeah. Well, I, I believe in physics and that the speed of light is the universal speed limit, so any distance any visitor would travel to come see us is going to be a very long trip for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they get here and they find a primitive species and they have their own sort of um, prime directive, which wouldn't rely on warp drive, what would it rely on? Well... An interesting um, achievement. A lot of people would point to nuclear technology and say that's sort of the the coming of age of a species. But covers what we call and gets into modern computational oh, so, oh, theory. Oh, oh sorry, I, I just kind of lost you for after the after the butt. Oh, so I would say um, a more interesting um, thing than when a society discovers nuclear power. Maybe this is my own uh, bias, but it's okay. when a society starts to be able to create computers and do programming programming and um, discover things through microprocessors and stuff like that. Right. So uh, should an alien species have come here and said, well, we want to, we're, we're on a long trip, we're not going to be back here for another 10 million light years, can we leave them something that's a secret and they'll maybe figure it out once they pass this milestone of inventing computers? 
sci-fi idea. I, I don't see any actual evidence okay, of it, but right. so, <laughs> you know, when when people can do Sudoku puzzles, then they have attained, you know, they have a right yeah. to contact the interplanetary parliament or something. And right. So we're going to encode this and hide it away until they can kind of find it. Which actually is something in his first book, Drosnin is sort of putting forward. He's got a couple of these skip sequences that say it, you know, it was locked away until we could discover it. Okay. Um, so let's see. Uh, there's we could talk about a lot of his claims. Like there's uh, a famous matrix he built around the Twin Towers disaster and trying to claim that that was encoded there. There's some moving the goalposts in that one where they're saying, oh, not only are there skip sequences, but some of them form the shape of a plane. So that's <laughs> <laughs> it's like ASCII art. <laughs> yeah, it's very much so. So it's, there's a whole new layer to the possibilities there. Humans, they have discovered Pong and ASCII art. They are ready. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the key. Yeah. So um, I think the story for me mo most comes uh, full circle when you start to um, talk about the response that was written. And uh, I'll go ahead and butcher some more names. Okay. In statistical science, uh, McKay, Bar-Natham, uh, Bar-Hillel, and Kalai put a response paper together that went through and took, tried to not only reproduce the original analysis, but took it to task for the, in a lot of critical ways in, in, that it wasn't holding up under good scrutiny. Okay. And I really have to give it to these guys for something that, you know, in the academic world, uh, you have a, well, in any world, you have a limited amount of time. Mm -hmm. So... Mm -hmm. If you what you choose to pursue, you have to do carefully, and, and to say let's take time out of whatever our core interests are and look at this and write up what is clearly a, a thoroughly researched and well documented paper. They wrote a really great response and invested a lot of time in deconstructing and writing a firm what I consider to be a very firm rebuttal to the original paper. Okay. Um, so some of the things they looked at was first how the very ba basic concept of the null hypothesis that the original team proposed is a little bit flawed in that. Um, their null assumed that these words have already kind of intersected, which is not is now that there's a there's a correlation there. You've already said, well, we're going to base our analysis on something that we're cherry picked out of this. Uh, it's not quite fair to say we want to compare it to chance. Okay. Something they didn't really uh, discuss in their paper, but I think it's worth noting is in all of the p-value calculations and, and how likely is this result to have happened by chance that the original uh, team looked at they compared it to what's called monkey text, which is just random letters in a sequence. What if monkeys banged on a typewriter? Mm -hmm. Would they have written this code? Which is not quite fair because the Bible, whatever you think of it, it certainly doesn't qualify as monkey text. There are actual words <laughs> there and, and stories. <laughs> it depends so, on what atheist podcast you're listening to. But. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, in language, there's a lot of distributions that show up. You know, it's no surprise that the word the is pr the most common word in almost every English text. And the second most common word, it appears about as third of frequently as that. And words after that, there's a sort of exponential decline. So there is some regularity to what, that what, text. What, what ranked, Fly Girl, what rank does that have in... in Fly Girl? Yeah, how often does that appear? Like the, the Oh, uh, depends used? on the text. Oh, okay, all right. Um, you know, in when you look at sort of, and here we're talking about word analysis, not you know letter analysis, but <laughs> generally it's, you know, if, if you're writing uh, about, uh, let's say you're reviewing Cosmos, the world word, uh, for, you know, Carl Sagan will appear in that quite often. If right. you're reviewing the latest issue of Spider-Man, probably Carl Sagan doesn't appear as much. So <laughs> it all kind of varies. Right, okay. But, 
um, that's you know some of the starting points and the flaws that that can be pointed out. Um, they also, in trying to reproduce the results, there, there, a red flag came up here in that the original team wasn't willing to share their data or their original computer code with the people that want to do the response paper, mm. um, which uh, perhaps there are people that have good reason for doing that. But in my opinion, in the scientific world, that should not be acceptable. Right. You might want to embargo your data and your code for a certain period of time for some reason. But when someone says, we want to reproduce your analysis, uh, that should only strengthen the analysis if, if it's actually true. The, mm -hmm. the truth has nothing to fear from scrutiny. Right. So the team went out and independently tried their best to recreate it. And they found not only did things not quite match up, they couldn't get the same results. Uh, <laughs> things were close, but it was clear something wasn't aligned. Um, they also looked at the rabbi selection process for that great rabbi's experiment, which is truly the basis for their claim. Okay. If you throw out the great rabbi's experiment, all of the uh, claims of academic legitimacy go out the door with it. Okay. Um, so when they did that, they found not only that it would actually be a different set of rabbis, pretty close, but slightly different, um, by the same metric proposed by the original team, but that the method was very sensitive to who you picked. So, for example, if you picked the four rabbis whose uh, matrices most, were most different from chance, if you just pulled those guys out, the result pretty much evaporated. It went from being a one in sixty thousand chance that this uh, one in sixty thousand probability this, that this came by chance to okay. only one in thirty that this came by chance. Okay. I like those odds a lot better. But yeah, yeah, still still wouldn't wager fifty bucks on it. But agreed. And and even more importantly, the the four the rabbis that they pulled out to get that were not like the top four most important. They were just four kind of at random. So you would expect if you know, if you pull out the top four guys and that weakens it, okay, but that was just four sort of arbitrary people on the list. Okay. Um, they also found that a lot of the, uh, what we call the appellations were cherry-picked. So this is when they said, we're going to look for this uh, rabbi's name and this date. Should we look for his birth or death date? Well, that they claimed to have made that choice a priori. They also said, well, how should we format the date? And what spelling of the rabbi's name should we use? Hmm. So in a properly controlled scientific experiment, you would want to have an independent person make any arbitrary choices like that. Okay. That didn't seem to happen in this case. So it seems that they most likely fine-tuned how they were going to um, format dates in order to most concisely fit this experiment. Right, okay. Now that's... Uh, I, I will, will levy that in, in an accusatory way. I'd say that's almost certainly exactly what these guys did. Because, for example, they picked three different formats of date. And by format of date, I mean, like, you could say, you know, four numbers for the year, slash, month, slash, day. Or you could do month, day, year, or the European way of day, month, year, I guess they do it. Right. Um, I, I don't know what's the right way, but you ought to pick one and stick to it. And they didn't do that. So. Okay. Well, I don't think the response paper accuses them. I'm happy to accuse and say that this was really a cherry-picked aspect. They they fine-tuned it to pick the combinations that, that suited the result they wanted. Right, okay. I, I mean, I, I probably, I think I might have told this story a long time ago, but, you know, back in high school, I, on my little Commodore 64, I wrote a program to sort of handicap uh, harness racing. Oh, cool. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and so I sort of like you know, went through the, you know, the, 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 uh, all the data on the horses and then thought I found one that picked 
winners. And mm-hmm. then I went to the track and I bet and you know, I won $20. And then I went back home and then the next week played again and then I lost my $20. And then I looked at my program and thought, oh, you know, I missed this data and this data. So I better put that data back in. Right. And then I, I, then I forced it to pick the winners, the existing winners. Aha picked the winners and then played it again and I won. Oh my God. You know, I figured it out. <laughs> and then, you know, maybe won a couple more times, figured it out. Yes. Yes. And then I lost the third time and I'm like, well, what did I miss? And I went back and rejigged it again to just pick the winners from that race. And then, you know, so all what I was really doing was sort of rejigging my algorithm to pick, you know, force it to pick the winners that I knew mm-hmm. were the winners from the last race. And if it, worked on the next race i mean it was just purely by chance but i thought you know so if i won like a couple races in a row i assume my my you know my pony handicapping software was uh was great but but eventually i realized that's all all i was doing i kept rejigging it to pick existing winners and and uh and, and but if you're not sort of conscious of that you know and i think a lot of you know sort of people will, will, will do that they're not really sort of conscious of that so they're kind of just yeah they're sort of rejigging their 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 algorithm to sort of uh you know find find what they want and yeah that's a great example and it, it's something I, I i have similar stories from my life where i've almost fallen victim to thinking i was onto something and, and in your case I, I think it's a great example because it seems quite plausible that you could write an algorithm to predict horse races, not with perfect accuracy, but with some high degree of accuracy. That's, if someone put that claim forward, I, I, I would be interested in looking at those results. But that doesn't mean that for sure you've done it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it, yeah, I think that part of it is of why these guys are so adamant about it is I think that some of it comes from a, a religious motivation. Right. Um, and, and I don't just mean that because most of the proponents, though not all, who, who believe in the Torah codes, happen to be um, uh, not just Jewish people, but people who follow the Jewish faith. Right, right. That if you already assume that this text is divinely inspired, the word of God, and you also know that it's the holiest thing, so we've made sure not to make any transcription errors, then it's not a far leap to think that there's codes in it. Um, but it also doesn't necessarily follow. Um, and another guy who's interesting in, in the story here is uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Robert Allman, who is a Nobel Prize winner, winner for a lot of his work in game theory. And this, this guy is the real deal. I studied a lot of his work uh, when I was in grad school. Robert Allman is a great game, game theorist, no doubt about that. Um, and he has this bizarre quote that he made when uh, he looked into the Bible codes. He says, a priori, the thesis of the codes research seems wildly improbable. Research conducted under my own supervision failed to confirm the existence of the codes, though it also did not establish their non-existence. <laughs> so, but uh, I'll give him credit, though. His next sentence is, so I must return to my a priori estimate that the codes phenomenon is improbable. It, it, to me, this is really a weak statement. The, I, I get the feeling this, this guy really wants to believe in this. Okay. Luckily, his scientific mind is kind of overriding it, but... Uh, there's a lot of motivated reasoning amongst the Bible code researchers, in my opinion. Okay. Now, I mean, not knowing too much about math, but I mean, but at least in math, you can you can prove something. You can prove a negative. You can say, you know, okay, you know, uh, yeah, you know, it's impossible to square a circle. You know, and here's mm-hmm. the, here's the proof, right? So, so if you know, he so he may not find the 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 you know, the proof of the Bible code, but he can't. You know, he can't find a mathematical 
disprove like like to me is is that semi valid or yeah it's it's always hard to prove a negative okay. it, it can sometimes be done especially in mathematics but um when you're in the statistical world which this truly is a statistical okay. claim okay. you know we want to say are these here by random or are these um by are, are is the evidence for these so overwhelming that there's no possibility that they're being found by chance um you can only really look at that statistically Okay. Um, and and I the original authors tried to do that, but I think the motivated reasoning ultimately got in the way, and we have a very thorough rebuttal that that walks through and shows some of the ways in which that's happened. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because I think this this uh, one of the authors rips. Like I mean, he's yeah. Uh, you know, he's uh, teaches at some Hebrew university in Israel. I mean, I mean, this guy is the real deal, right? Like in, in yeah. terms, yeah, yeah. So I mean, obviously, yeah, he is. I mean, you know, uh, Pendulet always uses the term pot pot committed like i mean he, he has a very vested interest in you know in the in the truth of the torah i i, I would right. imagine yeah yeah it's 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 an interesting that it came out of this book you know certain people have done comparisons to uh war and peace and uh moby dick to say do the codes exist there yeah and the original authors are always saying especially drowson pushes this point he says these don't exist in other books they're not there in other books but it's kind of a, an issue of how hard you want to look for them. Okay. Did, did um, Drosnin set the goalposts? Like, if you can find it in Moby Dick, then I'll... Um, yeah, who said that? It was Drosnin or it was Eli Rips who, who said, if you can find a, an assassination prediction um, in... It was either Moby Dick or War and Peace, then that'll be proof enough for me. No one's right. done that. Right. And uh, McKay, the guy from Australia, went ahead and did that. He found multiple assassinations that... He found Sirhan Sirhan in there. He found a number of other cases. Um, right. okay. uh, who is it? Uh, MLK's assassination is encoded in there just as much as Jitzak Rabin's is. Right. And, and you, 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 you found, you implicated me in an assassination from I did, in fact. Working um, you emailed this to me, right? Yeah. <laughs> it won't show up so well on an audio podcast, no, but maybe no. we can share it on the web somewhere. Yeah, I will, yes. I actually, I was hoping I'd find a more impressive one. Right. Um, I spent, I gave myself an hour last night uh, to write the code and look for a matrix uh, including your name. Um, and it's, it's not the most interesting one in the world, but for an hour it was a good find that in The Wizard of Oz, Frank L. Baum has encoded some things that implicate you. Uh, <laughs> so let me pull that up, my email, and remember what I found here. And th this one, you know, this is for fun. Uh, this one doesn't really qualify as, a, a, a takedown, and I did not try and compute the likelihood of this by chance, given the, the metrics the original authors proposed. But yeah, in a very compact series of words, I find you know your last name uh, next to it um, in the same exact skip sequence. The word Louise, who uh, presumably your intended victim, in the plain text. Uh, what did I find there? I never killed anything, and uh, a skip sequence right above that. The word lied. Implied that you lied when you made the statement that you never killed anything. The word shot and uh, what else? LOL appears here. Um, uh, you know, a number of things sort of imply that there might be some uh, nefarious business coming down the road. Okay, so I, I actually don't know any Louise, but I mean, all right, uh, be careful. That's all I'm saying. Don't piss yeah. me off. Uh, you know, it was fun doing that in uh, that I. I realized in the exercise, you know, I, I didn't, I coded my program only so far. If I was really going to be serious about this, I would make it find all the codes for me. But I kind of had to create a few matrices and then do some searches, and I sort of hand-parsed it looking for things. And mm. it, 
it's not easy. It's not like you look at this like a crossword puzzle and they all pop out. Mm-hmm. You have to stare at it for a little bit to find these words. In particular, like when I found lied, that is, uh, it's not connected. It doesn't look have that crossword puzzle effect where it's sort of one down, one over. Mm-hmm. It goes at a peculiar angle. So it, it doesn't jump out at you the way words do. Um, so if I was serious about The Wizard of Oz and I wanted to look at this all day, I'm sure I'd find a bunch more. And if I'm motivated to assume that the codes are there and not in another book, there's no real measurement of how much time and how committed I was to actually finding these codes because it's not at all an objective process, or at least what Drosnin was doing wasn't. Okay, okay. And, uh, yeah, so so when, when they did find all that stuff in Moby Dick, what, what, the, uh, the proponents of the Bible code, what, what did they... Did they abandon their uh, their hypothesis? I, I don't believe they have. Um, they, to the best of my knowledge, they've continued their work. Um, I don't believe anything else has been formally published, but okay. um, there's a book that's come out that Eli Rips is involved in and, and some documentaries and things, and they gave a formal, well, informal response. I mean, it's published publicly, but just on websites where it, it gets kind of vitriolic. They don't really go into the, the science or addressing the claims. They just say... You know, they're against us. They're not looking at these the right way. Um, there's no real, for me, substantive aspects of their response. Aside to say, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's very much, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, because I remember in the 1990s, one, one, of my, one of my sort of good friends, he was a coworker at that time. He wasn't actually my good friend when he was a coworker. Long story there. But now he's one of my best friends now after we stopped working together. But uh, he was like, he read this whole Bible code thing. And this was probably like the, you know, the late 1990s, 97. And, you know, so, you know, the whole idea of, the, you know, Apocalypse 2000 or Apocalypse, mm-hmm. you know, 2006 or something like that, he completely freaked out. And um, and then, and then I, I, you know, I sort of did a Google search on this sort of stuff and, I think it might have been Google back then. Let's call it Hotbot. Did a Hotbot <laughs> search on it, and yeah, uh, yeah or Alta Vista search, and uh, and um, um, yeah, I, I've actually found that where the guy was sort of talking about finding you know these things in Moby Dick and stuff like that, and I sort of pass on it to him. And and fortunately, you know, he can he can go kind of crazy and snaky about things, but but he 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 is one of those kind of people that will, oh, okay, yeah, oh, I get it, oh. Whew, and then he totally calmed down. So, I mean, sometimes there are some people that are intractable as, you know, as sort of skeptics, you know, it's yeah. no, no amount of evidence is ever going to change their mind. But, you know, there are actually people out there who, if you do show them, uh, you know, a sort of more prosaic kind of explanation, they'll go, oh, okay, you know, mm-hmm. which, which probably, you know, I mean, a lot, I don't know if you were sort of raised on a... Um, in search of and all that sort of stuff as, as, as a child, you know, like a lot of people came to skepticism through, you know, Leonard Nimoy's in search of and all of these, all of these sort of, you know, Bigfoot and UFO TV mm-hmm. shows. And then when we found skepticism and we found, you know, uh, uh, you know, these rational explanations that didn't involve, you know, that there are sea monsters and UFOs, you know, we all kind of went, oh, oh, okay, yeah, you know, I, I get it, right? Yeah, that, that's, that makes more sense or that that's that that's a more realistic way of thinking until you you know you establish you know the existence of space aliens that it's you know it's it's this and this and this so so yeah so yeah i mean there are people out there but they just have not necessarily had that exposure we had at the time we had it to become skeptics yeah uh, it, you know it's great when you meet someone like that and you think it might be an uphill battle and mm. they look at the evidence and oh, okay well cool yeah you're right 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they quickly, they quickly, yeah, they calms them right down. Well, yeah, it's a, one of the, I think the parts that got me interested in the Bible code in particular is that it has this veneer of science over it and, and, and statistics that at a glance, this looks like a really legitimate thing, perhaps. Right. Um, and you kind of have to do a bit of reading. You know, I, I think I learned about this. I was a freshman in college, so I really wasn't the statistician I am today. And I'm reading like, oh, this p-value is tiny, and I know what that means, and I'm generally impressed by that. But it's it's not as obvious as like a lot of the more kooky conspiracies you bump into. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing too, is because I mean, especially the uh, you know the original three authors. I mean, they, like I say, they were kind of fairly legitimate, and yeah. published in a legitimate journal, and 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 uh, yeah. But I mean, it's also kind of a good example of where. You know, I think, you know, where it, this is a very astounding claim, but, you know, people gave it a fair shake, right? It, people oh, very much so. Yeah. People didn't go, oh, no, la, 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 la. You know, they said, yeah. okay, we'll publish it and we'll see what somebody says and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I have to applaud both the journal for the original publication of this curiosity, even though I, I'm sure some people are upset about that because that's bandied about is now proof that, you know, scientists mm-hmm. are baffled. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But especially the response, I have to give it to those authors, the McKay's the lead author, who wrote up a really good takedown of this. And you, you don't often see that. I, I kind of make the analogy to, like, the uh, independent investigations group, you know, that they, mm-hmm. they look into things that a lot of scientists wouldn't touch just because, like, you know, ESP's over. We're not going to look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gives kind of the, the room for someone to go around and say, scientists won't look at this because they're baffled. Yeah. No, we, we gave this a fair shake. Yeah. And I, I seem to recall long year, several years ago, uh, BBC Horizons, which is kind of like um, their BBC's version of, like, Nova or something like that. I think they, they did a story on the Bible, the Bible Code. Again, very kind of, you know, skeptical and you know sort of concluded like you know this is just you know uh like you know degrees of freedom and Mm -hmm. cherry picking and stuff like that but but it was actually a very interesting treatment where it it was kind of it was it was sort of done like like the first half it's almost as if like man you know these these three authors got it dead to rights yeah there's there's secret hidden stuff in the Torah. And then, you know, and then they begin to slowly kind of do the reveal and pick it apart. And it, it's, it was really kind of brilliant, you know, kind of writing sort of like, you know, showing you how sucked into the, ble- how you could get lured into the, the fantasy. And then it, it's slowly taken apart. I don't, did you ever see that? That I have not. I'm going to have to go seek that out. That sounds really good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah definitely. You, you can find, I know you can find a transcript of it online, but I mean, if you're, uh, if you're into stealing things, I'm sure there's some torrent site out there that mm-hmm. I, I know, I know sometimes I steal horizon episodes from the torrents. Um, I'm not here to judge. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's like, well, I call, I'll say it when I was living in Korea and could have no access, no reasonable way to, pay or buy this these these tv shows and i would steal them but uh not That's today fair. not today of course but uh yeah uh, bill gates once said something i admired he said well we don't want people to steal software but if they're going to steal it they should steal ours at least <laughs> well Cor- koreans have taken them <laughs> this morning, <laughs> and i'm quite happy to steal yeah and me along with them so yeah but uh, so so this I, I so you know one guy this 
Dro Dro's Drozen guy. He uh he yeah, I'm sure he made some coin in Absolutely. Yeah. And did this kind of kick off a bit of a cottage industry? Like, you know, is there like, you know, the you know, the uh New Testament code or you know, the Carlos Castaneda code or I don't know. Yeah, I I've seen mentions of those, but none of them have taken off the same way. And to me, that makes sense because part of the reason this is compelling, you know, not just in the conspiracy aspects, like there's assassinations and wars hidden in here, but it's all mixed up in that mystique of things ancient, you know, that this is this, you know, thing that was on stone tablets and it's, you know, the Egyptians knew secret things we didn't know, and so did the mm-hmm. ancient Israelites. And it, it kind of has that wonderful mystique about ancient, uh, you know, who is the kind of flavor to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's partially why the, the stories carried along so long, is, is it has that, that ancient component. That, and, and you know, Andrasen's first book, he did legitimately make a prediction. How impressive it was is, is open to question, but it, it was pre-announced that he predicted something that did happen, and, and that's certainly carried both him and the um, idea along pretty far. Right, yeah. You know, I always think, um, you know, what was it? Um, a couple of weeks ago, NASA sort of came out with uh, about um, back in 2012, like a, uh, you know, a right. mass ejection nearly sort of, you know, wiped out human civilization, but we're kind of like just out of its uh, out of its uh, crosshairs. And, and I'm like, Wow, you know, if that actually had happened out in 2012, all the 2012 people would be going, see, see, what did I tell you? What did I tell you? You know? And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, we avoided it. We saved it. All the all the publicity had fixed it. Well, yeah, exactly. I'm also sort of <laughs> thinking that, you know, I mean, all the 2012 people who are like kind of going, um, um, yeah, are, are now have a whole new lease on life with this. Uh, right. You know? Yeah. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. I bet we're going to hear some of those come out in the near future. Yeah. I, I, I don't know how they're going to sort of spin that. Like, you know, how did, well, you know, exactly. All I, because I published this book and I saved civilization. So buy my next book, how I saved civilization or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, anything else you want to add about the, the Bible code or. No, I think we've pretty well covered it. You know, the, it, it could go on and on. There's lots of ins and outs, but I think we hit the high points. Okay. Is it, it's, it's, you know, like there's like an anagram server online. If you punch something in, it will spit out anagrams. Is there some sort of like like a web page where that will do Bible codes or something like that? Ooh, like, I don't know. Um, I know there's a piece of software you can purchase. Uh, actually, I bought this, you know, a decade ago, and it was at Best Buy on the cheap. Um, that works on the actual Hebrew of the Bible, which, mm. of course, I can't read, so yeah. it serves very little purpose. But could you do it with another book um, or maybe, you know, pull something from the Gutenberg Project? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not exactly. sure. Let me look for that. Tell you what, I, you're a Twitter guy, right? I'll yeah. tweet it at you if I find it, and people can go look for it there. Okay. Um, uh, otherwise, there'll be radio silence. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it'll be a few days before I sort of edit this and get up online, but, you know, but uh, definitely... Uh, listeners, check the uh, check the website for the the show notes, and if, if there is uh, something like that out there, you can sort of like uh, th- then uh, well, I'll definitely post a link to it. But if not, you know, if you want kind of a little side project and uh, something to earn Google Ad money, you know, it's, uh, it's there's an idea for you. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah. If we find it, maybe we can get a contest going of the listener who finds the most creative uh, historical conspiracy. Hidden right. in the Bible. Okay, yeah. All right, and uh, sorry. So, um, I, you um, 
Do, do you go? Uh, do you have any kind of skip? I mean, you you have a. How often do you come with your podcast? Uh, Data Skeptic podcast is mm-hmm. weekly, um, yeah. although it alternates. Uh, every other week, it's a like thirty to sixty minutes with a guest, and then the other weeks, it's with my wife and these short episodes. Okay, yeah, the, the, yeah. There's a the um. It reminds me a bit of uh. Do you, do you listen to Math Mutations? Yes, I love math mutations. Yeah, that guy's been going for years now, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was listening to him when I was in Korea, so it was like in two thousand before two thousand and eight, and it's what is it like twenty fourteen? Yeah, that guy's been going up. But I mean, I've you know off and on, I've been doing this podcast since I think two thousand and seven. So mm-hmm. I mean, but not like every week. It's it seems to be slewing into once every couple months. But I feel endlessly guilty about that. But uh yeah. Well I enjoy them when they do come out. So Yeah, thank you, Kyle. Yeah. Yeah, definitely this is a, a listener show. Um but uh yeah, so you, you, you do that podcast and uh do you, do you go to like you, I, I mean I didn't see you at TAM or anything like that. Do you do you go to skeptical conferences or skeptic yeah. camps or I do what I can. Uh I was most recently at SkepticalCon up in um Oakland, which I really enjoyed. And I think the Monterey County skeptics are having something in January. I used to go to TAMS uh, once I moved to California, but I stopped going a couple years ago. You know, I'm, I'm a, a, a nine-to-five guy with my three weeks of vacation a year. And yeah, yeah. at some point, the, the woman who is now my wife mm-hmm. uh, and I were, were getting serious and started vacationing together. And uh, I don't want to say she's not a skeptic. She's very skeptically minded, but mm-hmm. she doesn't wear it as a badge the way I do. So. right. right. It being more my thing than hers, um, I said, well, maybe that needs to go so we can take little trips. Although, I took her with me to SkepticalCon, and she had a great time, so maybe I can talk her into TAM next year. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I took my girlfriend to uh, TAM this year. Yeah, she had a great time. She was like, uh, you know, she's kind of one of those people that was always kind of skeptical, but never never had that circle of friends who were skeptical and it was always always having to go through life apologizing for her her you know her doubt and her skepticism and, and not sort of realizing that you know there's just there's a community and, and and she seemed to kind of enjoy that that you know that she can just be like you know because she's like like a mother and you know she was meeting all these women you know who are anti-vax and mm-hmm. it's but you know motherhood there's all kinds of like um maybe that's 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 next for you guys no pressure but uh you know <laughs> you know there's a whole lot of uh you know there's a whole lot of woo out there in terms of you know Absolutely. raising raising children but you know people get really you know letting your firstborn die it, it doesn't look good so you can get very very paranoid about that sort of stuff so so yeah and always having to just confront the stuff and 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 just you know just just driving her up the wall kind of thing and always having to sort of apologize and stuff like that so yeah so she was really kind of excited just to sort of find this whole community of people out there and she doesn't have to apologize yeah yeah, I don't know why I was so pessimistic about it. I think uh, almost for sure we'll be there next year with her. So I'm okay. looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she definitely wants to go back, but it probably my girlfriend's from Singapore. We have to go to Singapore probably next next year and see her parents and stuff like that. But uh, uh, I mean, they her daughter's four now, and they've not seen her daughter since she was a little baby. So it's kind of high time we sure. went that way. But yeah, but she's she's really nice. It's like you want to go here, okay? You want to go there? Okay, you know, mm-hmm. I'm quite lucky in that regard. So, well, I'm lucky in many regards, but it, mm-hmm. it's, it's always nice to have someone who's always happy to, you know, just tag along. And I call it. Um, uh, there was a Kurt Vonnegut book. Um, uh, um, 
I forget now, but the book with Ice Nine in it, uh, Cat's Cradle, where mm-hmm. uh, where one of the characters he has his fake religion and he talks about like you know offers of strange travel or dancing lessons from God and and uh, so it's that kind of idea. It's like you know it's like you just sort of go offers of strange travel. It's like okay, yeah, why not? It's kind of kind of dancing lessons or something. That's mm-hmm. neither here nor there. All right, so uh, let's see. And what are these these skeptical questions? Uh, oh, we always always ask if. Uh, if you uh, were to be in a fantasy or science fiction armed forces, which one would you join mostly just for the coolness of the uniform? Oh, hands down, the Jadoon from Doctor Who. The, who? Oh, are those, who, who are those, the Jadoon? Jadoon kind of look like rhinos and have this uh, Joe show, no full show kind oh, of way of speaking. Yes, right, right. Okay, right, yes, yeah. Yeah, our, our, they're uh, the new Doctor Who premiere. It's going to be in like theaters or something on on the Labor Day weekend. It is indeed. Yeah, my my girlfriend got me tickets for that too. She I, she's know nothing about Doctor Who, but she, I'm always yapping about Doctor Who, so she got tickets for that. So again, pretty awesome girlfriend yet again. Yeah, I'm but, counting the days myself. Yeah, are are you gonna go gonna go see that? Um, I'm going to see it at home because uh, I want to experience it without all the you know frivolity and loud nonsense mm. around me. But I'll probably make a theater going as well. Uh, they're doing one Monday in the LA area, so okay. I'll catch it then too. Yeah, yeah, because I was hoping to go. Uh, I wanted to go see the the uh, Game of Thrones finale, but those tickets had actually sold out like the moment they went on sale here in in, in the Toronto area. So mm-hmm. wasn't able to do that. But yeah, it'd be kind of kind of fun to do a uh, you know sort of a TV show, but in kind of a bigger crowd environment or something like that but peter peter what's his name peter capaldi peter capaldi yeah there was a there was a really good uh local hero there was a movie called local hero that he was kind of co-starring in if you ever get a chance to see this movie local hero with peter capaldi i definitely definitely recommend that but that's like that's like from the 80s it's it's quite weird and quirky and but uh yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So, and if you do sort of turn out to some skeptical thing, and someone's like, "Hey, heard you on the conspiracy skeptic podcast. You know, it was a great time. Uh, uh, can I buy you a buy you a drink? Like, what do you what do you what are you drinking?" Hmm. Uh, as far as fancy cocktails, mine is the Sazerac. Oh yes, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, me and my girlfriend were just talking about it because there was a there was a there was a restaurant with that name. And uh, it kind of closed down, but that's a really hard name to pronounce, you know. And uh, <laughs> yeah, right, Sazerac. It's the yeah, what is a Sazerac? Sazerac. Um, it's uh, I believe it starts out with um, what's the stuff that people say has wormwood in it? Um, absinthe. 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 There's right, right. like an absinthe bath, kind of like the vermouth thing with martinis, and then it's a rye with um, some you know anise bitters. I think don't know the recipe myself because it's one of those that. It, it seems to never come out right when I make it, or mm. when you know a, a less than top-notch uh, barkeep makes it. So maybe that's part of my appreciation for it. You've got to get it from somebody who really knows what they're doing. Okay, I, I think it's like one. It's very old, like a from the '30s or something, isn't it? The Cesarac. It's it's kind of it's been around for a while. But I think it seems to have some sort of revival lately. Lately, the Cesarac. Yeah, I don't know. The, at least that's what the menu said. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there should be like a restaurant menu skeptic podcast too. So. <laughs> I would love it if we just inspired someone to launch that. All right, cool. Okay, well, I'll I'll let you go, Kyle. And thanks a lot. That was quite interesting. And, and get, congratulations again on on your on your marriage. 
Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, this is a lot of fun for me. Ben, okay. Thanks for having me on. Okay, all right. And I'm going to keep listening to your uh, your Data Skeptic podcast and sp- I'll spread the word. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, me to yours as well. Okay, great. Okay, have a good, have a good night, Kyle. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye.